Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast. They're a bunch of guys who ain't never played the game, and they never got the girls in high school, and they just want to get in the game. <laughs> With your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. See, the thing is, you guys look at me, you see the backwards hat, the uh, gray socks, the funky outfit, and you say, now this guy's a chump, am I right? No. Indeed. Like Only on the VSIN Podcast Network. All right, what's up and welcome in. It's another edition of the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. We've got a lot to get to here today. This is our NBA first-round series previews. Go through each and every single one of the first-round series, preview them from an analytical standpoint, betting standpoint, see what we can get, if anything at all. I've made two series bets up to this point, so we'll talk about those as well. And we'll go through the series in order which I deem interesting, most interesting to least interesting series and actually, they're all pretty interesting, so you know me. I like the NBA. I actually, I enjoy sports, and so you can really find, I think, interest in almost anything in terms of sporting events, even if it's a bad baseball team versus another in the middle of a summer. But regardless, we have all these playoff rounds set, so let's dive into these. And I wanted to start out in the Western Conference. Shocking, I know. Western Conference, I think actually, I hate to go with the stereotype, but... Western Conference is super intriguing, pretty deep, and it's got some of the more intriguing series as well. But the one that I can't get over, let's go with Denver and Portland. 3-6 matchup. Denver opens up as a pick, and the series has really slowly become the one that I just I can't I cannot wait to watch, right? And we're gonna see that one up first, at least on the first day of these series being played on Saturday. So let's take a look at this from a series perspective in terms of the series price, first and foremost. Open minus 110 both sides. Circa peaked at uh, minus 132 on the Portland Trailblazers. That was the highest line I saw in favor of Portland. Plus 112 coming back on the Denver Nuggets. Pretty much the same everywhere else. Consensus wide. 
DraftKings right now is a buck twenty-two in favor of Portland, minus one twenty, minus one thirty. About the consensus on the Portland Trailblazers points bet was the only shop off market. They have a hub out in Denver, so you saw that as Denver minus one twenty. We addressed a little bit of this with Chad Andrus in the podcast a couple of days ago. So we won't spend a lot of time on this because we got a good deep dive from Chad. But I wanted to give a little bit more of my perspective because we got a lot from Chad in that one. Not that there's anything wrong with that. So let's start with the obvious, right? Because the Portland Trailblazers clearly have the advantage in their backcourt. CJ McCollum, Damian Lillard. If you look at the backcourt rotation that you're probably going to see for the Denver Nuggets, we're talking about Monty Morris, Facundo Campazzo, Austin Rivers, and potentially Marcus Howard. He only played like 200 or so possessions, but got some time down the stretch because, of course, of the limitations of Denver's backcourt as the season came to an end. So if you look down the last few regular season games, you're going to see that Mike Malone rolled out Composo and Rivers in the backcourt a couple of times together, and the results weren't really that good at all, right? Nuggets were outscored by two points every 100 possessions, defensive rating of 117.4, Fukuda Composo is a little bit small, Austin Rivers, for lack of a better term, kind of a chucker, right? Not an efficient score. There are going to be nights where Austin Rivers can score you 40, but the nights where he scores you 13 on a 3 of 10 or a you know 3 of 12 type of night, those are going to happen more often than the 40-point outcomes will. So if you get a starting backcourt of those two, it's not going to be great. But we have to remember that Monte Morris did come back near the end of the year. He's not 100% healthy, but he's a better option, at least to throw into this backcourt rotation, than an Austin rivers Composo combination of the backcourt. And when he's been on the floor, you know a lot of positive things have happened for the Denver Nuggets. When Monte Morris is playing... They outscore opponents by 6.4 points every 100 possessions. Offensive rating, 118.3. You know, really great figures. So while we don't know the true, right, I always make the joke, what's the little, the street fighter health bar above a, <laughs> above a player's head? I love when people are like, he's 85%. Like, oh, okay, really, thanks. Appreciate that. Um, so we don't know if Monty Morris is fully healthy. And, I mean, let's be honest. In any single sport, what's the cliche? All of these guys are dealing with something at this point, right? It's a 72-game season that these guys just went through. Monte Morris, along with a whole bunch of other Denver Nuggets and Portland Trailblazers and Utah Jazz players on and on, probably are dealing with a little bit of an issue. So while we don't know if he's fully healthy, Morris is a much better option in longer stretches if he can play them than a full combination of Austin Rivers and Vakuna Campazzo or young man Marcus Howard. And then you look at, like, again... This isn't to argue that the Denver Nuggets backcourt situation is better. It's not. Lillard and McCollum share the floor. Trailblazers outscore opponents by 9.4 points every 100 possessions. Offensive rating of 123.7. So it's a really immense edge that the Portland Trailblazers have. But I just can't get over the fact that like, we're forgetting that while the Portland Trailblazers have this edge with their backcourt, I mean, it's an equal edge for Denver in the frontcourt, man. Like, Nikola Jokic, as we know, has been absolutely fantastic. He's going to win most valuable player this year. They outscored the Nuggets, too, the opposition by seven points every 100 possessions when Nikola Jokic is in the game, but it's not just Jokic anymore, right? Aaron Gordon, Michael Porter Jr., in that front court, those three together have been absolutely fantastic. And it's a large enough sample size to feel kind of good about the numbers that you're seeing from these three. So when you have Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon and Nikola Jokic on the floor together. Denver Nuggets score 122.4 points every 100 possessions. They only give up 111.6. Their offense is efficient. 
like crazy efficient, right? You're looking at shooting 74% at the rim with those three on the floor, 47.9% from mid-range. And so working on the interior inside the arc, this team can really do it. Porter Jr., of course, stretches the floor out, and we'll see what you get from the the contributions, should put it that way, from your backcourt pieces. But this edge that Portland has in the backcourt is very much equal to the edge, I think at least, that the Nuggets have in the frontcourt. And so to, to, to automatically make Denver, who's got home court, and I shouldn't say automatically, but you understand what I'm saying, to make Denver the underdog here when they arguably have the best player, they have the best second player, like that's that's arguable, but Marco Porter Jr. could be thrown in that mix. Aaron Gordon could be thrown in that mix over a C.J. McCollum. Michael Porter Jr., one of the finalists for most improved. He's been absolutely insane over the last month and a half of the year. He's improved defensively as shown in that defensive rating when all three of those guys are on the floor together. I mean, there's a lot to like here about what Denver brings to the to the table in this front court. And here's the other thing, right? Not only does Denver have an advantage in the front court, they have an advantage in an area in which Portland has kind of struggled all year long, right? Portland ranks 23rd in frequency of opponent attempts at the rim this season, so they're giving up a lot of shots within four feet of the basket. 64.3% isn't bad. It's average, right? 15th in the NBA. They allow opponents to shoot 42.8% on all mid-range shots. And now, I am, again, I've always preached, you know, if I'm building a basketball team, right, it is strength at rim, strength at three-point line. I will be analytics nerd that everybody hates in terms of building their team and, and strategies. But if you allow, you know, 42.8% on all mid-range shots, 19th best mark in the league, and now you get a team that operates a lot in the mid-range, a guy like Jokic who can operate in mid-range, like, that's just not something that really bodes well for a team like the Portland Trailblazers. So you do have these distinct advantages for both teams, but Denver's advantage plays into the weaknesses of the Portland Trailblazers statistically. So again, going back to this series price, we were getting like a plus 112 coming back on Denver over at Circa, I thought that was a, that was worth a little bit of an investment when you look at it from that standpoint. And here's the other thing, right? Because there's obviously more to this matchup than what we're talking about here. If you look at this overall, the thing that has always kind of bothered me with the Portland Trailblazers and might not might be something that they might not be able to take advantage of here, unless you know they yeah, look game plan wise, they'll be able to maybe take care of something like this. If you remember listening to my coverage throughout the entire year, one of my slights against Denver. Should put it this way. One of my slights against Jokic in the race for MVP when Harden was still in it. He's the starting center on the worst rim defense in the NBA. And he still is the starting center on the worst rim defense in the NBA. They rank 30th, 16.1% within four feet of the basket allowed to opponents. They don't give a lot of shots at the rim, but when you get there, you can score, essentially. The problem is, is that while the dynamic guard play is in favor of Portland, it's not guards who, you know, consistently attack off the bounce. This is a Portland team, 23rd in frequency of attempts at the rim, 25th in rim shooting. They take the second most three-point attempts per game in the league. They're in fifth in shooting. So it's all about having a good shooting night for the Portland Trailblazers. And I am as big of a Damian Lillard fan as anybody else. But Dame time always seems to forget the junky elbow jumper that he just throws up early in a shot clock late in the, you know late in the fourth quarter. And those Dame time possessions happen because they're in really bad situations. So in other words... While Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum are absolutely fantastic, clearly from their numbers, 
They're not a team that's going to exploit a lot within four feet of the basket. And Denver this year has been fine in terms of what it's allowed along the perimeter, right? 15th average, 37% to opposing three-point shooters overall. That's going to be something that you got to fix, right? Non-corner three-point shooting, though, 35.3%. So those above-the-break threes that the Portland Trailblazers love to take, those are going to be something that they defend really well throughout the season, and we'll see if that matchup plays out. The area in which they really struggle, Denver, from beyond the arc, is at the corners, right? Because you always see this. I've brought this up a lot when we were talking about our evaluation of teams. If you were listening to The Edge, or I don't know what the hell the show was called when we were doing it over the summer during the pandemic, but when we were evaluating these teams, and I talk about this all the time, generally you will see a correlation to poor rim defense and corner three-point shooting, right? Those two kind of go hand in hand. A poor rim defense will also have a poor corner three-point defense because, right, relatively simple, driving kick, driving kick. So you'll see guys... You'll see teams, just put it that way, that can't defend the rim also have trouble defending corner threes. Same with Denver. 30th in rim defense, 22nd in corner three, right? But Portland's not a team that shoots corner threes because they're not a team that attacks the rim. So I just wonder, like, look, Portland is this is going to be a very tight series. Portland's a very good team offensively, but they're the 29th ranked defense with a poor interior against a very good front court. And it does seem like, just reading the tea leaves, Will Barton is going to be back at some point in this series. So again, looking at a price tag of plus one twelve, I just I I took a little bit here in Denver. It is not the most confident series bet I have made. Um, I'll get to that one a little bit later, but I think Denver in seven is the way that this thing plays out. So that's the one series bet I got. So one of the series bets I got so far, Denver plus one twelve. I'll go Denver in seven. Let's move on to the other Western Conference matchup, uh, the one that I'm also very excited to watch. It gets started on Sunday, Phoenix Suns and Los Angeles Lakers. And, you know, it's funny. I was actually, I felt very complimented. I was on Paul Howard's show, this William Hill show, for those who are listening who aren't in market. Uh, Paul Howard on Fridays has a local radio show out here, uh, sponsored by William Hill. So I'd fill in every once in a while, and I was on the other day. And he told me that David Thorpe, who does a fantastic job. I'm a big fan of Thorpe's work. Uh, obviously a developmental guy in the world of basketball. Uh, very good in terms of his analysis, obviously. Follow him on Twitter, by the way, Coach Thorpe. I think probably all of you do over True Hoop. But I guess they had him on. He was talking about, hey, you know, watch out for this son's defense. And I felt very happy. It always feels good when a smart person corroborates some of your thinking. For those of you who read Points Spread Weekly, you'll know what I'm talking about. For those who don't, you should. Beeson.com slash subscribe. But I wrote about one of my, my big piece this week was on the Phoenix Suns defense. Because in the second half, it has been absolutely awful. And I was really surprised because if you go, so for those who don't know, if you go to Cleaning the Glass, cleaningglass.com is is a site I use for all of these numbers that I generally throw out there. NBA.com slash stats too. They have a really good advanced stats database and it's all free over at the NBA website. Cleaning the Glass is like $4.99 a month. But some of it uh, is color-coded, right? So like, for example, in Cleaning the Glass, you know, if you start to rank like 15th, 16th and lower, uh, the number next to your team, you know, next to the stat, will start to turn blue. And so a lot of blue essentially is a negative, right? A lot of orange is a positive over at Cleaning the Glass. So if you just pull up the Suns defense accuracy numbers, right? Rim defense, mid-range, short mid-range, long mid-range, corner three, non-corner three, all three-point shooting. There's a lot of blue this year, man. And I generally thought that, you know, I was just tracking second-half numbers, got lost in those. It it had been a while since I had looked at the season-long numbers for the Phoenix Suns, and it's not good, man. And this is the point of my piece, that in the second half, the Phoenix Suns 
have become the team that I kind of expected from a defensive standpoint, right? 21st in defensive efficiency, according to the NBA's website. The rim defense has just completely fallen off in the second half. On the season, they've given up 65.5% to opposing shooters within four feet of the basket. How about this? In the second half, opponents weren't getting to the rim anymore. They actually had an identical rim frequency, but they were finishing at a 67.3% clip, regressing massively. 21st in defensive efficiency, opponents scoring 112.5 points every 100 possessions. And then you look across the board for the season-long numbers. What did I just talk about, right? With the Denver Nuggets, you got a poor rim defense? Well, guess what? You're going to have a poor corner three-point defense. And sure enough, rim defense for the Suns this year, 24th. Corner three-point defense, 24th. 41.8% allowed to opposing shooters. Really good on non-corner threes and above the break threes. Actually, they're third and fifth in, in the, excuse me, fifth and third in those respective categories. But here's the thing. When you're so bad on the corners and at the rim, if you're an opposing offense, there's really no need to jack up those non-corner three-point shots or those above-the-break three-point shots. Generally, and this is more observational than anything, generally above-the-break three-point shots are those non-assisted three-pointers, right? Guys along the wing just gets a little bit of a screen real quick and pulls up with a little bit of space. That's what you generally see, right? Come up in transition, just pull up real quick, shoot an above-the-break three. Those corner threes are generally because of that rim penetration. And if you can't stop anybody like the Suns can't, you're going to have a poor corner three-point defense. So the Suns struggle in both of those areas. The Suns have consistently been, consistently been the worst transition defense in the league. They're 30th in the NBA in that category. According to Cleaning the Glass, point, uh, opponents add 3.3 points to their offensive rating every 100 possessions. And the Suns give up 134.5 points per 100 plays in transition. So why this all matters, well, one, you don't want to regress defensively as you head into the postseason, but the other is, think about the areas of the floor in which the Phoenix Suns struggle. Can't protect the rim. Are awful in transition. Non-corner three-point shooting. Now, the non-corner three-point shooting maybe won't be that big of a threat against a bad shooting team, but guess what? You know what the Lakers and LeBron like to do when they have him out on the floor? They run. They get out in transition. They attack within four feet of the basket. They use their size to get into the into the restricted area. If you're going to struggle in these areas of the floor, what is this series going to look like against LeBron James and Anthony Davis finally on the floor together? And I guess, you know, I'll throw this out there. They had very respectful conversations with Suns Twitter last Sunday. I have been, like, the first half of the year, I was wrong about Phoenix. They were very, very good. But I wrote about it in the NBA guide, and I was consistent with this is, I am wrong about Phoenix. I, I said this all year long, and if you listen to any of my appearances on any of the shows, I am clearly wrong about Phoenix defensively at this point. But I did not think they were going to be this good. And sure enough, this has finally come to roost where they're just not performing very well. Off of live rebounds are not very good. Like There's just so many statistics where they've just been very poor on the defensive end of the floor. They have been. And look... You're going to look at their season-long numbers, and they're going to, you're, going to, you're going to see that they finished within the top 10 of defensive efficiency. But if you look inside some of those numbers, it's going to be a problem. And the other part about this is, offensively for the Phoenix Suns, they've been very good. Chris Ball's been fantastic. Their slow-paced team works within the mid-range. But if you look at what they do on offense, they don't get to the rim at all. Sure, they have a high shooting percentage at the rim, but they are 30th in frequency of rim attempts. They are 15th in terms of three-point attempts. They are 26th, or 21st, I should say, in frequency of non-corner attempts. But 
They are third, excuse me, sixth in mid-range shooting in terms of frequency, fourth in terms of frequency of long mid-range shots. You know, they're built around two elite mid-range scorers in Chris Paul and Devin Booker. And in a best-of-seven series, I will take the team that can score at the rim and from beyond the arc, not the team that is reliant on shooting inefficient jump shots. Now, look, they're really good. Led the league in mid-range shooting this year, 49.1%. Long mid-range shooting, 46.6%. Like, they're really good in those areas of the floor. But over a course of a best of seven, if the other team's attacking the rim, if the other team's getting out in transition, if the other team can potentially, the Lakers, I don't know if they can, but if the other team can actually start getting some shots off in terms of the three-point shooting and start to exploit you from that side, I just think this is not going to be a really good series and a really good matchup for the Phoenix Suns. So I do think there's value still in that $1.50 if that's still, if for those who are looking at some of these series prices. Lakers minus 150 you know, I was texting with Jeff Sherman about this the other day. My guess was Lakers minus 250 in that series, and we started to see the correction finally, where as of this recording, Lakers are a $1.80 favorite. It was really extreme to see that series price drop the way that it did. And that's courtesy of DraftKings, by the way, that uh, that series price. That was nuts. So I have this at Lakers in six. We know that LeBron James and one game deficit, game one deficits, right? Oh, and one deficits go hand in hand. Maybe he studies Phoenix. Maybe it's a divisional opponent. He doesn't have to, but I think I've seen enough from Phoenix defensively. It has corroborated what I have thought about them defensively before the season started. That this is going to be a series in which LeBron James and the Lakers move on at six games. All right, we're going to take our break here. Come back. We have obviously plenty more to get to in terms of these series. Two in the books on the other side. I, you look, I think we're kind of getting a little confused here. The Heat and the Bucks, they are the same franchises, but they're not the same teams that they were last year. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
This is the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast, only on the VSIN Podcast Network. All right, so Heat and Bucks. Very excited about this. Very excited about this. This is going to be a lot of fun. First series that we're going to see get started on Saturday. So what do we do with this? I think a lot of people, and I shouldn't even say a lot of people. I have heard analysis and I have read things, right, where the general consensus and vibe that I get around this series is Milwaukee better watch out. Miami Heat, again. But when I use the line that these are the same franchises but different teams, it, it is very true, right? The thing that I keep going back to, if anybody asks me about this series, please remember that last year there are three very big differences for this series that were not in play last year. Or some were. Whatever you want. My grammar sometimes is terrible. You'll understand what I'm saying. First off, that was played on a neutral court. They went to the same gym for every single game. All were in hotels. Neutral court setting. You now have travel involved. You now have home courts involved. With however much you know, fan support is going to be at either arena, there is still now home court involved. Whatever degree you want to measure it to, home court's involved. That's one. Two, the Miami Heat last year were the second best three-point shooting team in the NBA. The second best. He shot about 38% as a team. I was going through some of the numbers. How about some of these? Look at these game one through game five. These Just the total amount of threes that Miami was taking. 30 in game one, 45 in game two, 47 in game three, 45 in game four, and then 31 in game five. They shot 198 three-point attempts in non-garbage time. They shot 37.8%. So the first four games of the series, they shot 38.3 on 167 attempts. They were really good. Really good three-point shooting team. This year, they're not. They finished 19th in three-point shooting this year, the Miami Heat did. Their their shooting has been insanely, insanely inconsistent throughout the entire season. Now, having said that, oh, and I should mention the third factor, and this kind of ties into two, so maybe it's unfair of me to put this out there. Um, Jay Crowder's not on this team. And while that sounds funny, like Jay Crowder, what does that matter? Jay Crowder lit the Bucks up last year. If you don't remember what happened in that bubble, Jay Crowder looked like he couldn't miss a shot. He shot 42% in that series against the Milwaukee Bucks. He was absolutely incredible from beyond the arc. He was one of the big weapons that took down Miami. So when you evaluate this series, if your analysis is immediately to start to go back to what happened in Orlando, you got to take that with a grain of salt because this Miami team is very, very different, right? Now, let's take a look at a couple of things though, when it comes to Miami because Miami has been much better on offense since the All-Star break. They were 12th in non-garbage time offensive efficiency, 114.2 points every 100 possessions. Their shooting was still average, right? They finished 16th in the second half in shooting overall, 36.8%. But I think a lot of people will be... They'll have a lot of confidence in Miami after watching the last 16 games. Over the last 16 games, Miami finished 12-4, and four, and they showed some real life on offense. Over those 16 games, offensive rating was 119.8 in non-garbage time. Really good. They shot 40% on 34.5 three-point attempts per game. If that version of Miami's offense shows up in this series, the Bucs are in trouble. 
right? If you've taken in any of my content and you've heard about Milwaukee, you know exactly what the problem is where I'm going with this. Milwaukee, from a defensive standpoint, miss me with the garbage about their switching more because whatever they're doing in the regular season caused them to, to finish 29th in opponent three-point shooting, caused them to finish 25th or lower in both above-the-break three-point shooting by opponents and corner three-point shooting by opponents. Whatever they are doing, I don't care if they're switching more, the whole drop pick and roll coverage and emphasis on rim defense has still allowed teams to exploit them from beyond the arc. And if you look at the past, and if you look at the series in which Giannis has been eliminated, the Raptors over the course of their series in the Eastern Conference Finals shot 37%. I just told you about what happened with the Heat at 37.8%, essentially 38% from beyond the arc. This style of defense has gotten them more often than not, right? So you can miss me with that. But... Which Miami Heat is showing up? Is it the Miami Heat team who shot 36% on the season, who's probably not going to be able to take advantage of that? Or is the Miami Heat team that shot 40% on 34.5 attempts over the last 16 games? Because if that offense shows up, then Milwaukee's got some problems. But here's the thing, and I said this to ER Aaron Running on Human's show on Friday on My Guys in the Desert. If you are going to take Miami's short sample size spurt offensively over the last 16 games as gospel, if you're going to tell me that that is the real Miami Heat, then you have to give credence to the fact that the Miami Heat in the final 16 games of the regular season gave up 114.1 points per 100 possessions defensively, the 19th best defensive rating in the league. They gave up the fifth fewest attempts at the hoop, but allowed opponents to shoot 73.3% in that area of the floor. Like, those are issues, right? So if you're going to take the final 16 games as gospel offensively, you got to be concerned about that defense. And that was really surprising to see Miami in the second half. So when you evaluate Miami, the inconsistent offense is going to be a pretty big problem. Maybe moving Tyler Hero off the ball, coming off the bench a little bit more, maybe that changes things a little bit. Maybe the shooting is a little bit different. Also remember that Goran Dragic was a machine. Leading scorer for this team in the postseason. Is he going to be able to recreate that for Miami in this series against the Milwaukee Bucks? And the other thing that has really bothered me about Miami, similar to Milwaukee a little bit here, where... Milwaukee's three-point shooting in terms of opponent percentage has been very bad, right? Very bad. Miami has been giving up a lot of three-point attempts. They're still not terrible in terms of opponent three-point shooting, but their perimeter defense has allowed the highest frequency of attempts, 40.6% from beyond the arc. Opponents are shooting about 37% on those shots. And so if you look at this, like across the board, that's kind of interesting, right? Like, you know, when you give up the most shots from beyond the arc, but your opponents are shooting only about 36%, to, to a certain extent, you're kind of lucky, but you're taking on a Milwaukee team that is going to take quite a few three-point shots. So how that plays out for the Heat's defense is going to be really fascinating. But that defense does have one thing, one thing, that they can bring back to the table here from the series a year ago, even if Jake Crowder's not out there. I laugh. And that is the, for lack of a better term, the wall that has been built around Giannis in the postseason. The Toronto Raptors have used it. The Miami Heat used it. Their series last year, Miami held Giannis to 21.8 points, an average of 7.8 field goals made per game. Might seem like really good numbers, but remember, he finished that season last year at 29.5 and 10.9 makes per game. So we're talking about about 8 points less per game and about 3 fewer makes per game. This season, averages of 28.1 and 10.3 makes. If he averages anything short of that, Milwaukee's going to be in trouble. And the issue is Giannis has not really added much to his game yet, right? He's attempting three-point shots, but they're not falling at a consistent rate. 
And if you look throughout, 33.9% combined on his jump shots, mid-range shots and three-point shooting, 30.4% from deep. Why would you respect his jumper now? So he is going to see a lot of this wall yet again against the Miami Heat. The difference from last year to this year, Eric Bledsoe's not taking those three-point shots anymore. It's a combination of Drew Holiday, right? Very good upgrade. Brent Forbes going to be out there, 40% shooter from this year taking those shots. Still have Chris Middleton. Like, it's going to be on the new additions here. The new kids on the block, is that a reference some people understand? To take the pressure off of Giannis and win the Miami Heat or packing the paint, building that wall, allowing them, or excuse me, forcing them, I should put it that way, to respect the other shooters. Because in that series last year, they didn't respect Derek Bledsoe. They didn't respect Chris Middleton. And ultimately what happened is they lost. And so that is what has to happen in this kind of a series. If the ancillary pieces around Giannis are going to show up from a shooting perspective and the Heat don't show up like they have all year long from a shooting perspective, then this is a series the Bucs can win. And ultimately, the sample size is too large to kind of ignore with the Miami Heat. So as tough as this is, and if anybody remembers, I was a big Heat backer last year. Had the 80-1 to ticket on him to win the whole thing. Loved watching them play. Loved watching them get all the way to the NBA Finals. This is going to be a really fun series. I think the Bucs win at six. I just don't like what I have seen from Miami throughout the entire year on offense, at the end of the year on defense. There's just too many inconsistencies with this team. There's too many changes from this team. And here's the last point on this, again, as we talk about series prices, right? As I mentioned, there's there's a ton, a ton of different like pieces, moving parts to this series. Bucks minus 305, Heat plus 240 on the series price. Remember, you were getting about 4-1 to one on the series price in the Miami Heat last year. And that was on a neutral court. Now the team is arguably worse, the team has to travel, and you're getting a lower price. It's just not worth it from an investment standpoint. So I think the Bucks move on in six, unfortunately. It'll be a fun series, though. And I say unfortunately because I just, I don't know why, I just, I, I don't enjoy Milwaukee. Like, I like Giannis, I like watching Giannis play, but I think I'm so annoyed by their style of play, especially defensively, more, more so defensively that I just dislike the team in general. Like, not so much the players, but I just like, ugh. I don't want to see Miami have success, or excuse me, Milwaukee have success. Whatever. All right, let's move on. Clippers and Heat. Clippers and Heat. Clippers and uh, Mavs. Let's go here. 4-5 matchup in the Western Conference. Very exciting. My pick to make it out of the Western Conference, the Los Angeles Clippers, a team that has been riding pretty high in the second half of the season. Now, this is going to be interesting, and uh, ER, Aaron Renning, uh, throughout that uh, he had a bet on the under in this game one and I'm really intrigued because if you go back to the first two or you know the last two games that these two played we'll throw out the first one that was the blowout where they were down the Clippers by like a thousand points at halftime it was on a Sunday I remember this well because John Murray over at the Westgate when I was there watching football that Sunday came over to make fun of me so I remember it well but let's talk a little bit more about the two games that we saw between these two teams Mid-season, right? Because we're talking about like 105-99 finals, like 106-98 finals. Very low scoring contest between these two clubs. And a uh, a rematch, of course, from the regular season, or excuse me, the postseason last year. So the Clippers ending the season, one of the best in the league. Second half, only second in net rating behind Utah. Outscoring opponents by 8.4 points every 100 possessions. Sixth and fifth in offensive and defensive efficiency, respectively. Health has been better. Going to get pretty much everyone back on the floor here for this one. And the Mavericks have been one of the more inconsistent defensive teams in the league. 22nd 
in defensive efficiency, 113.8 points, every 100 possessions, 20th in opponent shooting at the rim, 16th and above the break three-point shooting. Now, let's dive into this a little bit more because one of the issues that I had with the Los Angeles Clippers last year, one of the issues that I had with the Los Angeles Clippers at the beginning of the year was the lack of a true point guard, right? North-south type of guy that can attack consistently, get within four feet of the basket, and either find guys or finish himself. They really lacked that presence. And on the season, 26th in terms of frequency of attempts within four feet of the basket. But here's the thing. Second half, Los Angeles Clippers, different team. They go from bottom half of the league, I'm going to pull the numbers right now, they go from bottom of the league. I, mean, I shouldn't even say bottom half. Like I'm talking like the very bottom of the league in terms of frequency of attempts at the rim to 15th in the NBA in the second half. They have made a more concerted effort to actually attack within four feet of the basket. They were 26th in the first half. They were 15th in the second half, right? So it's much better in terms of the ability to attack within four feet of the basket. So you have a team that's attacking a little bit more against the 20th-ranked rim defense. Their shooting has always been good within four feet. They just never get there. That is exploitable. The fact that in the second half, the Mavericks, 23rd best non-corner three-point shooting team, above the break three-point shots. Clippers don't take a lot, but guess what? Across the board, first in overall three-point shooting, first in non-corner three-point shooting, first in corner three-point shooting. This team can shoot the lights out from any area of the floor. They'll be able to exploit that for the Dallas Mavericks. And when you look at what happened in the year prior, right? The one thing that Dallas was able to do consistently was really exploit the defensive game plan for the Los Angeles Clippers to extend that game to that series to six, by the way. Remember, the Clippers actually won that game. That series, just put it that way. Reggie Jackson playing big minutes defensively against Luka Doncic, not really going to happen, barring health here in this type of a series. You're probably going to see more minutes of Kawhi and or Paul George on Luka Doncic in a series like this. Remember that ridiculous game winner that he hit? Was it game two or three in that series? Like Paul George just allowed Reggie Jackson to get switched on Luka Doncic, and Doncic was like, hell yeah, and they took him to the left wing and he hit a three over him. Those are the type of things that you're not going to see from the Los Angeles Clippers in this series. Again, home court now back involved, so the Clippers are going to be playing at home and in Dallas. You know, the Mavericks eat a home court as well as we know. But all of these little factors, I think, are going to change the way that this series it ultimately comes out, right? Paul George is in much better form than he was a year ago. Kawhi Leonard, of course, healthy on the floor. Those two together have been absolutely fantastic from a net rating perspective. When they play together, it's been absolutely incredible to watch. And look, I, I think what's interesting about the Los Angeles Clippers, as I'm pulling up the uh, Kawhi and Paul George numbers, I think a lot of the support for them, like for me, for example, you know, I've, I've talked about how good they are offensively, their aggression to the mean defensively. For those who don't remember, uh, they were one of the leaders in terms of tightly contested shots in the first half, but they were one of the uh, worst teams in terms of opponent field goal percentage on those shots. So they were getting to the spots, they just weren't hitting them. That has regressed to the mean immensely, so their defense is not anything anywhere near as bad. But when Paul George and uh, Kawhi Leonard are on the floor together this year, plus 18.1 in terms of the net rating, 124.3 on the offensive rating, only giving up 106.1 points every 100 possessions, that is a team that is going to be able to beat up on the Dallas Mavericks defense that has been wildly inconsistent this entire year. Especially, especially from beyond the arc. 
So then you get the flip side of this where, okay, so what's going to happen with the Dallas Mavericks, right? Offensively, because there's two sides of the floor. And Dallas is fantastic in its own right on offense, right? Doncic on the floor, Mavericks, 118.3 points, everyone 100 possessions, shoot 69% at the rim, 37% from deep, half-court offense, 104.9 offensive rating with Doncic on the floor. One of the best figures you're going to see, right? But they got to do all of that against a Clippers team that allow the six fewest points per 100 possessions and should per, per 100 plays is the specific term in half-court situations at 95.1. And Dallas clearly thrives with Doncic on the floor. There's no question about that. But their defense, as we mentioned, is so inconsistent that even with Doncic on the floor and those staggering offensive ratings, 118.3 per 100 possessions, 104.9 at the half-court, guess what? Net rating, only plus 3.1. So like every 100 possessions, even with all of those great offensive numbers, it's still a one-possession game. That is always what has turned me off from Dallas because they ran it back with a seventh seed. Congratulations. They got a five this year. But defense still remains an issue. Don't really love their center rotation at all. The Los Angeles Clippers have a small ball lineup that they can roll out there and still feel confident against any one of, you know, Max Kleber or Kristaps Porzingis. I just really like these matchups here for the Los Angeles Clippers. And finally, the last, you know, bugaboo here for the Dallas Mavericks. With Doncic on the floor, you're barely outscoring opponents by 3.1 points every 100 possessions. When he's off the floor, your net rating, still positive. Congratulations. It's plus 0.6. Right? Like, this is going to be a problem for any one of these situations that you're looking at this, too. And, you know, we can talk about a lot of the things for the Los Angeles Clippers, right? Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. You can flip it. Paul George on the floor, Kawhi Leonard off the floor, plus 1.5. So if you stagger those minutes, it'd be pretty good. Kawhi Leonard on the floor, Paul George off the floor. At this point right now, according to cleaning the glass, throughout the regular season, Los Angeles Clippers, a plus 5.5 and an offensive rating of 122.3, right? Like there's just a little bit more depth and a little bit more pop here for the Los Angeles Clippers when they start to dive into some of their bench units. Now, the non-Kawhi, non-Paul George minutes, those are going to be a little dangerous. And maybe we're going to start to see from Ty Lue, but that's not really going to happen, right? That maybe you'll start to dive in a little bit more and start staggering these guys. So if that happens, those are going to be some opportunities for Doncic and the Mavericks. But outside of this, there's so many other statistical advantages for this Clippers team, matchup advantages for this Clippers team. Last year, I thought they would be able to handle Dallas. And I'm going to go back with that same thought. Clippers in five here in this series against the Dallas Mavericks. Team, or a guy like Doncic is going to steal you a game. Shoot, we saw it at the end of that. We saw it in that series in Orlando. But I don't know if that's going to be the case here. So, four series in the books. Let's go one more before we get to our final three. The Atlanta Hawks and the New York Knicks. The station will remain nameless, but the uh, other day I did a radio hit. And the guy baited me into ah picking the New York Knicks in this series. He sounded like a very big Knicks fan, and he was not happy when I uh, when I told him I thought the Hawks would win, which I don't really understand. Like, if you think something, you think it. Like, you don't have to be unhappy about these sort of things. But regardless, all right, let's talk about it. Knicks were 3-0 in the regular season against Atlanta. What gives? Well, I've mentioned this a couple of times. Lloyd Pierce was a coach for two of them. Bogdan Bogdanovich missed a game. Danilo Gallinari missed two. And, of course, Trey Young was on the floor in the third quarter with the Hawks nursing an eight-point lead. When he goes down with an ankle injury, they lose that game in overtime. So, while the 3-0 record stands for the New York Knicks, 
there are some nuance to that 3-0 record that would make you think, eh, eh, eh. Like, maybe not the strongest 3-0 record. One too many ass, right? Committee to the bit. And should know, too, right? The collective... The market has been wrong about the Knicks. Seventh best ATS record in the last 30 years, according to our colleague Ben Fox, 45-26-1. So clearly undervalued by the market. But I think once you start to look into this, you realize that, okay, the Hawks have some advantages here, right? Under Nate McMillan, 27-11 and 11 straight up over the final 38 games, plus 4.6 net rating. Eighth best offense in the league at 117.1 points, every 100 possessions. No question that Atlanta has been a different team under McMillan. They're also healthier, right? With Bogdanovich, Gallinari back in the mix, DeAndre Hunter, which is going to be massive. But let's start with the Knicks offense because I think that's going to be the biggest problem for New York in this one. Regular season, Knicks finished 24th in offensive efficiency, non-garbage time minutes, just 110.7 points, every 100 possessions. Biggest strength, three-point shooting. Very good, right? Actually finished fourth in three-point shooting. I think that would surprise a lot of people if you were to just generally say, you know, what do you think about the Knicks offense? Do you think they're a good shooting team? They're a really good shooting team. In terms of percentages, they've been absolutely fantastic. The problem with their three-point shooting it's not even really a problem because it's been very good. They just don't take a lot of three-point shots. 32% of their attempts from deep, that's the 24th highest frequency in the league. And under McMillan, they've actually been pretty good, the Hawks, at limiting opponent attempts, right? They don't give up a lot within, uh, from beyond the arc. They give up just 35.2% from deep to opposing shooters. Some of that is random. The Knicks can probably shoot a little bit better than that. But regardless, perimeter defense has been really solid under McMillan for the Atlanta Hawks. And what's, what's troubling about the Knicks offense, too, which is why it's been inefficient, it's built around mid-range shooting, but not efficient mid-range shooting, right? New York takes the seventh most mid-range attempts of any team in the league, the seventh most, but they shoot just 40% on those shots. Imagine taking the seventh most shots from an area of the floor, but being one of the worst in terms of shooting from that. Like, that's bad. Being inefficient from an inefficient area of the floor, leads to that offense. And it's why is it they are as low as they are. And the other part of this, which is really worrisome, look, the Knicks have been very good defensively, right? The statistics, and we'll get into some of the numbers behind it too. Julius Randle off the floor, offensive rating, 109.5. Like, that's going to be a problem in those non-Julius Randle minutes. How are you generating your offense? Your defense still might be very good, but if your offense goes from 111, still not good with Randle on the floor, to 109.5, how you generate offense whenever Randall is resting is going to be, I think, a very good challenge against this Atlanta Hawks team. And like I mentioned, with Hunter being healthy again, they now have the wing defender to throw on Julius Randall and feel comfortable with a matchup like that. So the health is going to be a pretty big deal here in this one. But as we know, Knicks didn't get here playing offense, right? They got here playing defense. Fourth and nine garbage time efficiency on defense, 108.4 points every 100 possessions. No lower than sixth in any of the major shooting categories defensively on cleaning the glass. Third best half-court defense, 93.1. Sixth most efficient transition defense, 121.1. Holy crap, how good is this defense, right? Series victory clearly through the route of, hey, we're going to play defense. We're going to lock down the Atlanta Hawks. First, let's start with the perimeter defense, though, right? Yes, top of the league. In terms of opponent three-point shooting, just 33.8% from beyond the arc. But 38.1% of their opponent attempts have come from the three-point line. Does the strategy of allowing perimeter shots against your opponent, right, does that work against Atlanta? Third-best shooting team in the league since McMillan has taken over at 38.7%. If you're going to allow the same team 
to take three-point shots in a best-of-seven series, does that strategy ultimately work for you against a team like Atlanta, who at one point will be able to roll out lineups with five shooters on the floor? I just don't know if that's going to be the case. Second is rebounding. Atlanta has been one of the better rebounding teams in the league all year. They grabbed 28.4% of their missed attempts this year. That's the sixth best rate in the NBA. If New York has a weakness, it's their half-court offense. Their 19th and opponent offensive rebounding rate allow opponents to grab about 26% of their missed attempts. In the second half of the season, the Knicks were just getting crushed on the boards. 26th in offensive rebounding, 20th in defensive rebounding, 21st in overall rebounding rate, or just the amount of rebounds that are available. What's your share of grabbing those? Just 49.2%, again, 21st. The Hawks finished top 10 in all of those categories. So I have the Knicks with a pretty bad rebounding disadvantage, it looks like. The Knicks, who statistically defensively have been very good, but still allow a lot of perimeter shots. And the last time I'll mention this, I'm sorry, I just have to do it. It's just really fascinating, and I wonder if this regresses to the mean. The Knicks allowed the sixth most wide-open three-point field goal attempts this season, but opponents shot just 34.7% on those shots. A team with the ability to shoot like Atlanta, if they are going to get wide-open looks, they are going to hit them more often than not over the course of a best-of-seven series. So I think ultimately, Knicks have been very good, but this Hawks team, to me, power-rated as the fourth-best in the Eastern Conference, Hawks in six. I bet him. Uh, I got him at minus one twenty. Looks like I'm on the right side of the series price move there because Hawks are now like minus one fifty, getting into that range, minus one thirty five in some spots. So I think the Hawks are going to eventually win this. Move on into the East semifinals. All right, we'll take our final break here. We got three more series left to go. That's some boring ones too, and I think we've kind of saved the worst for last to a certain extent because there is an opportunity here for these final three series to all end in sweeps or within five. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast, only on the VSIN Podcast Network. All right, let's get into this. Last three series, we'll start with next and Celtics because I, I just don't know where this goes past five games at the most, right? And those five games are played because in one of those contests, Jason Tatum does what he did against the Washington Wizards, just goes absolutely nuts, drops 50 points, hits all 17 of his free throw attempts, and they eke out a victory over the Brooklyn Nets. But given where they're at from a roster standpoint without Jalen Brown, given the issues that they've had defensively all year long, I just don't know what the Celtics do to extend this series past that point, right? Let's look at the regular season series, and we'll start to paint the picture of what I'm talking about. Nets, 3-0 straight up and against the spread against the Celtics this season. Average margin of victory of 15 points and a plus 16.5 net rating. Really impressive numbers. And what's even more impressive and scary for people who back the Celtics and are Boston fans are the fact that uh, in those three games, the Nets were never whole, right? Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant at the season opener blew them out all the way back there in December. Irving had James when they won in March, and neither Harden nor Durant were on the floor for the thriller at the end of April, which these Nets eventually covered anyway. So if the Celtics couldn't handle this team when there's just two of the three on the floor, what happens with all three of them on the floor now, right? Harden, Durant, Irving on the floor, outscoring opponents by 11.1 points every 100 possessions, offensive rating of 123.2. They're elite, elite from every area of the floor. At the rim, 68%. Mid-range attempts, 52.2%. From distance, 39.7%. That's nuts. That is absolutely insane. The 52% on mid-range jump shots is absolutely ridiculous. Offensive rating in transition, 155. They average a point and a half in transition per play. 99th percentile qualified lineups. 103.5 points per 100 plays in the half court. Not a single weakness for Brooklyn here offensively. And I, you know, I don't think I'm breaking any ground, but the problem is when you're Boston, you know, it was almost similar to when we were talking about Phoenix earlier in this pod, where I was kind of surprised to see the blue, as I was talking about, right on cleaning the glass and there are statistics defensively, how bad and how below average this Celtics team has been on defense, no higher than 16th in every major shooting category on defense. Perimeter defense, massive problem. Opponents took 36% of their attempts from beyond the arc. They had 37.6% of those attempts. They were 23rd in opponent mid-range shooting. 22nd in rim defense. And by the way, those are all defensive numbers with Jalen Brown playing a majority of the season. A quality wing defender, now he's not going to be on the floor. So you had all these defensive issues for the Boston Celtics throughout the regular season. Now those are going to get magnified even more because Jalen Brown's not going to be there for a best-of-seven series, and you're taking on the big three for Brooklyn. I just don't know from a defensive standpoint what in the world Boston is going to be able to do against Harden, Irving, and Durant as long as all three of those guys are going to be healthy for this series. And again, you know, I keep playing this game. You know, Remember we were kids, and it was like, draw the line to the matching thing. Like, do me a favor, and as you're reading or listening to this, like write it down on a piece of paper, the lineups that you're going to see for Boston and Brooklyn. And you just draw me a line to who's going to guard Kevin Durant. 
Is it 6'7", Jason Tatum? Cool. I've got three to four inches on him. Is it 6'10", Robert Williams? Cool. I've got speed on him. Right? Like, there's so many different things that you can potentially throw at Kevin Durant. But who is really going to guard him on a possession-to-possession basis? Marcus Smart? Cool. I think he's listed at like 6'7". He looks like he's 6'5 at times. Regardless, giving up quite a bit there. You're going to see a lot of jumpers over a Marcus Smart type matchup. So that's going to be a nightmare issue. And then, again in the postseason, I wrote about this the other day at the top of, you know, if you read the series previews, in the postseason, matchups get hunted. And you know who's going to get hunted on a possession-to-possession basis by the Brooklyn Nets? Kemba Walker. And so they're going to put Kemba Walker in a blender. They have nobody from a size perspective to match up with Kevin Durant. So where this defense is going to come from in terms of stymieing Brooklyn for four games? No shot. Sorry, no shot whatsoever. So then you get to the other end, and it's like, well, John, the Brooklyn Nets are terrible on defense. You're right, you know, season long it was bad. 21st in defensive efficiency, 113.7 points per 100 possessions. Half-court defense, real problem. 97.4 points every 100 plays. Offensive rebounding rate to opponents, 26.6%. And in fact... That's where you kind of get to the big weakness for Brooklyn, right? 118.8 points per 100 putback plays this season. 27th best mark in the league. Teams that grab offensive boards will have a real opportunity to do some damage against Brooklyn. And Boston can do that. Boston is the second best half-court offensive rebounding team in the league. 28.7% of their misses in half-court situations they grab. Sixth in offensive rebounding rate overall. And in fact... Against the Nets this season. How about this? Against the Nets this season. The Celtics crushed them. They grabbed 35% of their misses, 51.8% of the available rebounds at the three games, and it led to them going 0-3 straight up and against the spread against the Brooklyn Nets, right? So congratulations, Boston. You can win the rebounding battle. You can get a whole bunch of offensive rebounds. You can probably get some second-chance points. But at the end of the day, even then, it led to two double-digit losses in three games in which the average margin of victory for the Brooklyn Nets was 15 points. So maybe there's a path to victory there. But I just don't know if I see this. And the conver- let's talk about this conversation, this, this Brooklyn Nets defense, right? Because, yes, hasn't been good. But this is my favorite stat that I dug up. Harden, Durant, Irving, when they play together, 112.1 points, every 100 possessions allowed. A defensive rating that is better than Boston's this season. So for all that we talk about Harden and Irving and Durant, they can't play defense, they suck. Their defensive rating is better than Boston's as a team when they're on the floor together. So again, it's not going to be a dominant defensive performance, but I do think that this conversation around oh, defense doesn't matter anymore. The Brooklyn Nets have just broken everything. They're they're bad. They're not good. They're below average. They're not as bad as you think they are. Right? They're an elite transition defense. And yes, I said that. Elite transition defense. 1.113 is the offensive rating, or 111.3 defense rating, you should put it that way, points per play. 111.3 points per 100 plays in transition. One of the best that you're going to see out there with those three on the floor. There are things out there that you can like a little bit about the way Brooklyn plays defense. But since they acquired Harden, I thought that the Nets were the best team in the Eastern Conference. Harden makes them the best team in the Eastern Conference. I just don't know if this goes past five. So I have enough respect for Jason Tatum that I selected Boston. To extend this to five, I think Brooklyn wins 4-1 to one this series. But 
wouldn't be surprised if this ends in four. Just don't know what Boston brings to the table in that regard. Philadelphia 76ers taking on the Washington Wizards. This one's going to be quick, too, because, look, I just don't know where the offense comes from for the Washington Wizards, right? 76ers finished the season, third-best defense in non-garbage time minutes, 108.2 points, every 100 possessions. They only got better in the second half of the year, which, by the way, real quick rewind. I got a lot of pushback, like, well, the second half, the Phoenix Suns, they were coasting. They didn't really care. Really? I don't want to hear about that, because guess what? The Clippers, the Jazz, the 76ers, all com- you know competitors for a title, they still finished within the top five in defensive efficiency. So why can't the Phoenix Suns? Maybe because they're not that good. Regardless, we're talking about the 76ers and the Wizards. Second half, 106.3 points, every 100 possessions, a full 6.8 points better than league average. Opportunistic as well. Third best defensive turnover rate in the league, 15.3%. They allow opponents to shoot to 63.5% within the basket, 36% from deep. Like, there's just so many categories across the board that this team is going to be freaking awesome at defensively. And then you look at Washington, and I just don't know, again, how they're going to be scoring consistently, right? Because their offense, even during this last, you know, stretch during the regular season where they were 17-7, and they split the two play-in games and eventually win their eighth seed, they were great offensively. If you look at it, right, average, 13th in offensive efficiency over the last 24 games, 115.8 points in non-garbage time minutes per 100 possessions, 10th in rim shooting, 11th in three-point shooting, but a majority of their offense generated inside the arc. They ranked 14th in frequency of mid-range attempts, or excuse me, a frequency of attempts at the rim, closed regular season, second in frequency of mid-range attempts at 41.2%, but if you're an offense that generates mostly within the arc against the Philadelphia 76ers, how is that going to work out, Right? It's just not a matchup that is going to allow them to operate efficiently, especially with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons on the floor. Now, what's interesting is Washington got here, but they didn't really get here offensively, right? Throughout this regular season stretch that they were on, defense allowed 111.4 points every 100 possessions. Final 24 games of the regular season, they were great at the rim, great at the arc, right? Gave up nothing really within four feet of the basket, seven few, uh, second fewest attempts at the rim during the end of the regular season, fourth fewest perimeter shots, Game plan resulted in opponents taking a bunch of mid-range attempts. They actually ranked 30th in frequency of opponent mid-range shots allowed over these final 24 games. But that's the plan, right? Look at the Jazz. The Jazz would be like, hey, no, 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 no. You're not going to get perimeter shots. You're not going to get rim shots. Just take mid-range shots. We'll be fine with that. Well, here's the thing with uh, Washington, though. What's really interesting, it worked for the most part. Opponents shot just 34.9% from deep. They finished 8th in opponent effective field goal percentage, but two massive flaws with their defensive game plan down the stretch. At the rim, well, they didn't allow opponents to get there. When they did, they shot 67%. And how about this? Opponents not only took the most mid-range shots of any team in the final 24 games against Washington, they shot 45% on those attempts. That's the fifth highest mark. So Washington was allowing mid-range shots, and they just kept going down. And why that matters? Joel Embiid has evolved into an elite mid-range scorer. He's been absolutely fantastic. Philadelphia ranks fifth as a team in frequency of mid-range shots, fourth in mid-range shooting. This is just a matchup nightmare for the Wizards, man. And, you know, you look at it, like, speaking of Embiid, right, who are you getting on this roster? Again, draw the line. Circle the guy. Is it Robin Lopez, who went on the floor? The Wizards allow opponents to take 42.5% of their attempts from mid-range and shoot 46%. Is it Alex Len? who, again, mid-range shooting numbers just as bad, rim defense absolutely worse at 66.9%, or is it Daniel Gafford, who has statistically been Washington's best available center, but he gives up nearly three inches and 50 pounds to Joel Embiid. Like, just across the board, man. 
Offensively, Bradley Beal, they got an elite scorer. You're right, they do. Well, guess what? The Philadelphia 76ers have a defensive player of the year finalist in Ben Simmons who they can put on him. They have Matisse Thibel, who is a big part of why they finished third in defensive turnover rate. They have Danny Green. Like, there's so many different things they can throw at these guys, man. I just don't know how this this happens for Washington in terms of extending this out, even past five. So I pick Philly in four. I think this is going to be a sweep. Philadelphia takes care of business there. And then last but not least, the final series that was set just last night as the Memphis Grizzlies get a big win in overtime. Thanks to Grayson Allen, Andrew Wiggins. That was such a bad shot at the end of overtime. That was sarcasm. Grizzlies taking on the Utah Jazz. I just don't know, again, if we're looking at this from a statistical standpoint between these two teams, right? Utah's going to get Donovan Mitchell back. But from a defensive standpoint, Utah Jazz, best defense arguably in the NBA, right? Outside of Philadelphia, Los Angeles Clippers are going to be in there. But like across the board, no worse than 10th in any of the major shooting categories. If we're talking about rim, short mid-range, long mid-range, total mid-range shots, corner three, non-corner three, all three, right? This is a really good team. I think the thing that concerns you if you're the Utah Jazz, to an extent, think about the times in which Rudy Gobert has been, for lack of a better term, neutered defensively. It has been in series and games like Chris Paul. Chris Paul loves to play against Rudy Gobert. He loves to play centers, right? He'll take you out into space. He'll make you work. He'll put you on skates. We've had plenty of plenty of highlights of Steph Curry doing the same to Rudy Gobert. So theoretically, you would think that John Morant could do the same. Here's the problem. Think about those two players that I just mentioned, outside of just the grandeur around them as NBA players. Think about their style of play offensively. The difference between a Steph Curry slash Chris Paul and John Morant, John Morant does not have the consistent jumper that both of those guys have from any area of the floor, right? Morant, as great with that floater push shot, he, he won the bleeping game yesterday on it. But if you look at this overall, Morant just doesn't have the skill set to take advantage of Rudy Gobert out in space like some of these elite guards have been able to do in the past. Memphis is a team that, if you look at their offensive game plan, in terms of frequency of attempts, 27th in terms of frequency of three-point shots, 19th in terms of frequency within four feet of the basket. They thrive in mid-range, specifically short mid-range, where they take 29.4% of their attempts, and they shoot 44.2%. Those stupid floater push shots that you know John Morant just hit the other night. How does this offense operate against the Utah Jazz? And the other part of this is, the reason why I, they, I think the Jazz ultimately falls short in a series with either Los Angeles team is that Royce O'Neal, from a defensive standpoint, is not going to be able to keep up with the offensive skill set of the scoring wings that either one of those teams have, right? LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard. Paul George, he matches up a little bit better because, you know, Kawhi Leonard, or excuse me, Paul George is not as big, massive as a Kawhi Leonard, LeBron James type. Royce O'Neal can handle anyone. There's no dynamic scoring wing for Memphis, Right? It's Dylan Brooks finding space and then hitting a jump shot from mid-range. You know, And like that's the other thing about this offense is there is some flow to it. But think about down the stretch for a couple of these games. The Spurs game, for example, it was just Dylan Brooks attacking off the bounce and then hitting step-back mid-range jumpers. It's not going to work here against the Utah Jazz. Does that steal you a game? Maybe, I guess. 
But here's the inverse of this. Remember, the Memphis Grizzlies hail from, the staff, I should put it that way, they hail from Mike Budenholzer's staff, Taylor Jenkins. He's done a really good job for the Memphis Grizzlies. But that also means that you have some of the weaknesses that the Milwaukee Bucks have. Memphis Grizzlies, rim defense, one of the better ones in the NBA. Fifth in terms of opponent shooting within four feet of the basket. Prioritize rim defense. Drop Jonas Valanciunas. Don't allow anything at the hoop. Don't switch a lot. Allow those perimeter shots. And what does that lead to? 20th in frequency of opponent attempts from beyond the arc. 25th in non-corner frequency. And then in terms of shooting percentage, 19th, 37.4% to opponents from beyond the arc. Corner threes, 43.9%. Last time I checked, Utah Jazz, pretty damn good in terms of shooting the ball. Third in, in terms of all overall three-point shooting. Fourth in terms of non-corner three-point shooting. 11th in terms of corner three-point shooting, 40.4%. They actually take the most corner threes of any team in the league, the Utah Jazz do. And guess who happens to rank 29th in corner three-point shooting defensively? The Memphis Grizzlies. So if Memphis had an elite perimeter scorer that could steal them a game or two, I I think that there could be something there. But ultimately, they don't. They have John Morant, whose main operation is inside the arc, as is Dylan Brooks. Grayson Allen's a very good shooter. We saw it at the end of overtime against the Golden State Warriors, but at the end of the day, they just don't have the guy who creates his own look from the perimeter and can shoot on a consistent basis to keep up with the Utah Jazz. Jazz and four. All right, so that's it. That's the end of the pod. I appreciate you tuning in and listening. Thank you very much for all the time. Uh, So three episodes this week. Very excited about that. Again, I'm going to try to get these out more regularly. Uh, I do have a numbers game duty coming up over the next two weeks, so we try to keep up the writing as well. We'll see how that plays out too. This shouldn't be a problem. I only have three games a day. So the writings will be up at vcin.com slash jvt. We'll see if the podcast can continue to go up on a daily basis. And Maybe like a daily quick like 20-minute one-offer type of deal after some of the games at night. Um, and get those up immediately. But regardless, please, if you're listening to this at this point right now, like, rate, review, subscribe. Always very much appreciated. Very much appreciated the positive words about the podcast too. I know this is just me rambling, but hopefully it helped you out a little bit there. And we will see you on the next episode of Hardwood Handicappers. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. 